thing. If, if you will open your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel chapter 43, which is page 619 in the Bibles in the seats. Ezekiel 43, I know that's a little bit obscure. I wager few, if any, have read it. Um, you know, usually books like Ezekiel, you could say, I'm going to read Ezekiel, but to get all the way to 43 is a real feat. So uh, if you could turn to Ezekiel, and I want to talk to you about a little word called privilege. What is privilege? Privilege, I suppose, is a certain, has a certain connection to recognition or access, being special. I think we all, we all enjoy privilege in small ways. When it's your birthday, you know, when I was a child and it was my birthday, you get to walk in the front of the line in class because it's your day. Back in that day, we used to have chalkboards. And I got to clean the chalkboard on my birthday, which is always, washing the chalkboards was always a distinct privilege in the class. And we'd stand very straight and you'd wash the chalkboards. There's that kind of privilege, which is sort of bestowed upon somebody, not for having done anything, it's just sort of, today's your special day privilege. That's maybe the most benign form of privilege. Uh, then there's a privilege that can be bought. Every time I fly, I watch this happen as an outsider. And it's it really, I don't think the people sitting in first class want all of this privilege. I think the airline is peddling it so that I want it. You know, but I think people in first class want nice seats. But you know how they board. You know how they make those people feel really special and how they make us feel. You know, we sitting way back in like 99Z. <laughs> um, and, the, you know, I, I, I've, always, I've always wondered why, why board them first, actually. In, in the protocol of privilege, the most respectable person boards last and they're first off. That's how the president, he's the last one in, and he's the first one off. Why board first class first? Well, they want the person in 99Z to see them drinking their glass of wine and reading their Wall Street Journal as he's heading back to where the chickens are. <laughs> they want that, because it's, it's privilege for sale, okay? Which, in America, is actually, that's sort of... Um, Privilege for sale is a little bit of a dark thought. There is um, a privilege you see like athletes who uh, perform very well, well on the field and then uh, sort of gain access to other, so get a microphone that talks to other issues. You know, when I was a child, I remember Charles Barkley, great 76er, he sort of disowned that privilege very publicly. He said, I am not this role model. Don't look at me as a role model. I'm an athlete. It was a very public, unique at the time. Unique at the time, there was an understanding back then that good athletes were supposed to be good role models. 
But he said, look, I want the privilege, but I don't want the responsibility. And he was very honest about it. And to this day, I've actually enjoyed his refreshing honesty in some of those ways. Uh, he was very honest about it. I want the privilege, but I don't want the responsibility. That was an interesting thing. It was the, there was an assumption that with privilege came responsibility. In the service, in the military, there is an acronym, R-H-I-P, rank has its privileges. And that's very, very true. The longer I've been in, which maybe some of you will say, well, that's because now you have rank, but the longer I've been in, the more I've come to see the need for it. Um, you know, there is a point where you realize, wow, this general works 16, 17 hours a day. Like he's getting his first brief at five in the morning. I understand he gets a parking spot when he goes to get a haircut because he has like 15 free minutes a day. You know, you begin to see why the, the privilege is coming because of the responsibility. Additionally, there's a whole lot of things you can do as a second lieutenant that you can't get away with as, as a general. As a second lieutenant, nobody expects that you're ever going to do anything right. So you can do, you know, you can practically break the law and someone will show up and say, he's a second lieutenant, this is just what they do. And, you know, and they'll take you back and they'll yell at you and they'll whip you. But you are sort of, you, you don't have any privilege, but you, you barely have any responsibility. People know that you're just a chucklehead. But with privilege comes responsibility. That's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to, we're going to see this in the word, the discussion of privilege taking place and the nature of privilege before the Lord. Because we are, we, speaking of us sort of in the ideal collective here, we belong to the Lord and with that comes a great privilege. But what the Lord is going to show us today is that at the heart of privilege is embracing responsibility. And someone who understands their privilege understands limits the right way. They see limits carved out in their life as places that affect their witness because of who they are. And the Lord's going to be trying to redeem this among a people that have fallen uh, by the wayside. They've fallen from grace and they've sort of They've made so many bad decisions, and the Lord's trying to build this up in them. And so that's what we're going to be doing in Ezekiel, is seeking to understand this, this notion of godly privilege. Ezekiel uh, is preaching to a group of Israelites that were conquered by the Babylonians and stripped away from their homeland and drug all the way back to Babylon. So this is a very lonely lot of people that are a thousand miles from home and many of them don't understand why, why, did, why is their life bad. In fact, this was the most privileged crowd in Israel. When the king of the Babylonians came in, he stripped out the most privileged and he hauled them back. So they're the people who sort of never had a bad day in their life, you might say, or just sort of living on top, and they're the ones getting shackled and chained and drug off. And they're wondering, why did this happen to us? And Ezekiel is a priest. He was one of those privileged exiles. And he's, a, he's sort of a priest preaching 
to them in Babylon, trying to bring a sense of, this is what we did wrong. This is the word of God for us to help us understand why such a terrible thing would happen. And we're here in the 43rd verse. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday, which I suppose by all the guests is many, there was a vision that started last Sunday. And in the vision, Ezekiel saw he was transported to this visionary Jerusalem, you might say. And there was an angel there who was sort of like a tour guide. He had a measuring stick. He was an architect, an angelic architect, you might say. And Ezekiel saw this this majestic temple sanctuary complex. And his angelic guide, they measured out they measured out meticulously all the dimensions of the temple and its buildings and its walls and its gates. And it was sort of this perfect construct that Ezekiel had to see. That's what we worked on last week. And we talked about the roles of walls and gates. And the intent was that the people would see the perfection of what God intended and they would feel shame because they would say, well, that's not how we lived. That's last week. That was our goal. The goal was when you see what God has in his ideal, the, the ideal mind of God, the reaction of somebody who's living, who has a, a real heart for God, would be to feel shame. Like, oh, we didn't measure up to that. And the Lord says, and if and when they feel that shame, keep talking to them, keep showing them, because that is a person who can learn and grow. Well, today we're going to see um, how he puts people back in their place. You're going to see the sin is sort of privilege gone wild. Okay, I'm going to be in 43, and I'm going to begin reading in the sixth verse. It's going to say, while the man, the man is this angel architect, while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple and said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of the kings at their high places. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts by my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they have defiled my name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Okay, it's kind of a tough section. The voice is the Lord's. It's coming from he who is enthroned in the temple and who's planted the soles of his feet in the temple. So it's the voice of God himself speaking to Ezekiel in this, in this vision. <clears throat> and he says, he begins with a very heartening idea. He says, I'm going to be here forever. I'm put my feet down in this place forever. But then he begins to describe how things are going to be different. He says, no more will the house of Israel and the kings defile my name. 
So he's thinking of the house of Israel, that's the people of Israel, and the kings, the leaders of Israel, the privileged of Israel. No more will they defile my name. And he describes it with two basic phrases. The first is he uses the word by their whoring, which is like prostitution. And when a prophet says that, they almost always mean idolatry. So the image that God tries to raise up with Israel is that God is the husband and Israel is the bride. And so when the people would go after other gods, he would say they would prostitute themselves. They were chasing after other gods and devoting their lives to other gods, even though there was no real love to be offered back. Meanwhile, he, the true husband, was trying to really love them. And so that phrase and this idea, when God says whoring here, what he's saying is, is because of their idolatry. And then the other phrase is, because of the dead bodies of their kings in high places. And I think the best we can make of this is that somehow over the period of time, the kings of Israel had begun to make much of themselves. And that the people of Israel had begun to make much of their kings in such a way that they were making monuments of their dead kings on high places. You might even think beginning to worship. It certainly will not be the first time in history where emperors and kings begin to liken themselves as there by divine right or they themselves being divine. And so there's this impression that as Israel sort of fell in sin and was falling away from the Lord, idolatry was at the center of it, and then the sense of the royal class being discontent with their normal station and rather seizing for themselves the things of God. Wanting the things of God. And he says it in the next verse. He says, their thresholds are next to my thresholds and their doorposts are next to my doorposts so that there's only this thin wall between me and them. God's saying, they've encroached on me. They, I am supposed to be the one true God, Yahweh, God of the universe and Lord of Israel. And yet, Right next to me is an idol of another god, and right next to me is a monument of some bygone dead king. You might think that God was trying to build a temple on a mount, but it turned into sort of this unholy strip mall. Where in this strip mall, you go here to worship this king, or God and this king, and then this idol, and then that idol, and somewhere in this unholy strip mall is Yahweh. He's somewhere in there of these 40 shops of this huge parking lot. The Yahweh, the God of the universe, is one of those. But connected to doorpost and doorpost and threshold and threshold are just every sort of co-opting derivative of who he is. And he says, no more. No more of that. I want us to keep this problem in mind, okay? This problem, particularly of the kings. The way the kings drew close to the building of God, not because they wanted to be close to God, but because they wanted to grab privilege that was not theirs. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to sort of follow through the next text several sort of examples of the Lord putting things back in place, redefining privilege, redefining it as it really should be. And he does it with the priests, and he does it with the, the kings or the princes. We're going to just well, only have time for the princes. So we're going to go ahead and look at that. Let's look at chapter 44. Just want to look at three verses, verses 1 to 3. Now, the image that we saw last week, the image of the temple was one where the temple sat in a courtyard. And there was an inner wall of the courtyard, and then there was an outer wall of the courtyard. And and the outer wall was 500 cubits. It was perfect. 500 cubits by 500 cubits, which is like three football fields square. Perfect square. And, in, and then there was the inner wall, and then there was the temple. And the temple sat on the west side of that wall, and then there were gates on the other side. There was a north gate and a south gate and an east gate on the inner wall. And then there was a north gate and a south gate and an east gate on the outer wall. That was sort of the perfection of the design uh, in the passages last week. Well, when God came... When God returned back into his temple, he went through that outer east gate, and then he resided in the temple. And this, as I read, hopefully that, that background helps a little bit with the reading. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which the Lord, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it and eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Okay. So we see a gate. It's the outer eastern gate. And God says that gate is going to forever be closed. It's going to be ever be closed because I passed through it when I was on my way to the temple. So now it's set apart and it's holy. So in a sense, it's, it's consecrated to the Lord. In another sense, it's good news. It, the gate is forever closed. God is in the temple and the gate's closed. There's, gone is the fear that he may one day leave again. Okay, But then we enter into this discussion about the prince. And it says the prince... If the prince desires, the prince can meet the Lord in the east gate for sacrifice. That's privilege. I mean, you, we should hear the privilege in that. Not anybody can go to the east gate to meet the Lord. It's closed. It's closed off to everyone with the exception of the prince. And I will say, by the way, Ezekiel will never speak of the kings as kings anymore. He's speaking to them as princes. God is the king. So after the indictment of the sin of the kings, from that point on, they're always referred to as princes in this book because God alone is king. So there's this this privilege for the prince, which is he can meet with the Lord But with it is also limitation, which is if the prince wants to meet with God, he can do it way outside the temple at the most extreme point, the farthest gate from the temple door, that's where the prince can meet. 
Gone are the days where he's going to walk into the temple grounds and walk up into the inner court and put a threshold next to my threshold and a doorpost next to my doorpost. If the prince wants to talk to God, the prince can do it at the outer gate. You see the limit? In fact, God doesn't say the gate opens wide for the prince. The gate remains shut. He says if the prince wants to come, he can use a side door into the portico. He can use the janitor's access door to get into the gate. God will meet him there. I don't, want to, I don't want to abolish the notion of privilege. God will meet him there, but thus far and no farther for the prince. There's a limit. In the past, the kings presumed to be right beneath the Lord. And they would co-opt the priests and they would levy their influence. And there's even examples of kings trying to do sacrifice as though a priest would do it. And now this prince is pushed way out to the extremity, the extremity of the temple complex. And between him and God are all of the priests and all of the Levites. He's third on the list. There's many people who are closer to God than him. But he can still meet with God. I'll show you another one. Chapter 45, there is this long description. And if you're looking in your Bible, you either might see something like 25,000 cubits a bunch of times or something like eight and a third miles. Depends on what translation you're using. About the same distance. But the title I have for chapter 45 is the title Holy District. That's the title I have. The Holy District. What the Lord is going to do is around his temple complex of 500 cubits by 500 cubits, he's going to zone off a huge tract of land. And in fact, here's a picture to sort of help. I'll describe it, but there's the picture. Okay, you see the blue rectangles? The top blue rectangle, all of the blue belongs to God. So God says, all of this is my holy district. This is my land. However, I reserve the top section for the priests. I will allow the priests to live on my land. And that's like 25,000 cubits by 10,000 cubits. It's eight miles by three and a a half miles. And then beneath it, there's also another one of equal size, 25,000 cubits by 10,000 cubits. Another eight and a half by, or eight by three and a half miles. And that's for the Levites, which were the tribe that kind of dealt with the things of the temple. They were, they'd attended to the duties of the temple. And then there is this section, 25,000 cubits by 5,000 cubits, reserved for all of the house of Israel. So This is sort of neutral territory. In Israel, each tribe, each of the 12 tribes had their land. But in the the city of God, or in this great area of God, he reserved a place that they could all come to, to meet him. So that if if you combined all of the blue up, it would be 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. It sort of is this perfect number. And smack dab in the middle of the priest's land is the temple. That little black square is your 500-cubit temple complex. He's dwelling in the midst of the priests. You know where the princes live? Outside of that. 
They have privilege. Lots of land. God gives them lots of land. He says, to the princes, you can have the land to the east and to the west of my holy district. And he defines the extensions of it. But it's lots of land. You can have lots of land. But your land will not encroach on my land. That's yours. You can have it. But 64 square miles around me is purposed for God. And he says this in the ninth verse, or the eighth verse that I'm going to pick up. Verse 8, And my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression, and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. And 10 through 12 goes on to simply describe what a true weight and measure is. The implication is, unlike the practices of the old king, the princes now need to use honest weights and measures. And they need to stop oppressing the people. Do you see, you see the, the privilege and the limitation in that teaching? Like, privilege. Princes, you have all of this land huge tracts of land to the east and to the west. Right? There's, they're princes. You can have this land. Limitation. You cannot touch the land around the temple. You can't draw near to the temple. You can't put your palace next to the temple. The temple's not going to sit in the shade of your mighty palace. You can't build a monument to, the, to yourself anywhere near the temple. All of that is going to be put in its place. Likewise, if you build your palace and you look out of the window and you see land in the holy district and all of it has is one goat on a chain staked to the ground where it's eating tin cans and trash, you can't buy it. You can't take it. You can't have it. That's what God says. I am done with you taking land from the poor. You have enough. The impression you get is privilege gone wild. Privilege with no stop, no governor, no sense of responsibility. No sense of responsibility at all. It's sort of, because I'm privileged, I can pursue greater privilege. And God is saying, you're missing it. Verse 9, verse 9 is the key verse. Put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. Do you hear it? God is calling the prince into purpose. He's assigning meaning to the privilege. He's saying, you, you have been given privilege for a reason. The 46th chapter gives a, one other window into this. <clears throat> this is essentially what it says. I'll just summarize it for you. The 46th chapter says, the people are to set aside part of their produce and their livestock and their animals for sacrifice. According to their means, sort of goes on to describe that. He says, and the people will bring that portion of their consecrated offering, they will bring it to whom? To the prince. Now, they're not giving it to the prince. 
It's because the prince is responsible to make sacrifice on behalf of the people. So when the holy day comes, when the Sabbath comes, or the new moon, or the festival, or the feast, or whatever it is in the calendar, the, the prince will take from what's been gathered, and he will go to where he's allowed to go at the temple, and he will offer sacrifice for the people. It's 46 begins to build purpose. 46 is, is reminding the prince, you are the ambassador of the populace. You're the first citizen. You represent them. I can't, one million people can't walk through the temple grounds making sacrifice. You will come and on their behalf, you will approach me. And it's perfect. We can see Jesus in the perfect image of it, right? In, in the perfect described image of a prince that understands their privilege, you see one who stands on behalf of everyone, who comes and makes sacrifice on behalf of everyone behind them. It says to him, when he comes in, he's going to come in and go out with the people the same way they come in. When they come in from the south and they leave from the north, he comes in with them from the south and he leaves from the north. When, he, when they bow at offering, he bows at offering. He's one of them there on their, their behalf. I'll stop here. He does the same thing for the priests. So we could do that again. It's chapter 43, 44, 45, 46. He deals with how do I reestablish a prince who has a sense of purpose and limitation in his privilege? And how do I stand back up a priesthood who stands for me and understands the role that they're in? So what do we do with this? Well, last Sunday, we talked all about the temple. And we said, well, what do we do with this? We said, well, the fact is we're the temple. <laughs> so we don't, it's not just some esoteric teaching about the temple. We are the temple of God. Right? That's the New Testament writers are very clear about this. We are the temple. You, like living stones, are being built up into a house of worship for the Lord. So we are the temple of God. So when we look at God's careful design in the temple, the way everything is perfectly ordered and matched out, we, we should rightly think that this, this people of God should reflect God's sort of divine purpose. Well, right after that Living Stones passage, Peter goes on to say, you are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. I mean, he almost merges prince and priest together. You are a royal priesthood. And your role, he's, he's writing, he incidentally is writing to a church. First Peter is written to a church that by all the best accounts consisted largely of slaves and women. It was socially, it was the most marginalized sort of fellowship you could imagine. It was Socially, it was on the margins. And yet, Peter's writing to them saying, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's bestowing them with titles of great privilege. And then he turns around and says, therefore, live your lives in such a way that the world outside can't help but worship God. Uh, 
I want to ask you, for those of you who claim to be in Christ, what do you make of the privilege you've been given? What do you do with the privilege you've been given? We've been given great privilege. Jesus died for our sins so that we can stand upright before the Lord. We can walk in hope. Right? We had a great prince who on our behalf offered himself a sacrifice so that we can stand straight in the sun before God and know that we have his love and approval and that everything that we've done wrong, all of the sins and the consequences of those sins, the eternal consequences of those sins, have no hold on us anymore. That no accusation can stand against us when we stand before the Lord. That is the privilege we have. We have the privilege of being called sons and daughters of the Most High God. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. That's privilege. What do you do with it? At one point in Romans, Paul entertains a question. The question is is being asked from somebody who's keenly thinking, if God has forgiven me of my sins, does that mean I can just keep sinning? I mean, it's sort of a defiled, witty question. Have I cracked the code here? (laughs) What are you saying? You're telling me he's died for my sins. Why not just keep sinning? In fact, at one point he entertains a question. In fact, if, my, if greater sin brings greater grace, maybe I should keep on sinning so that I could receive more grace than anyone else. To which Paul responds, something like, have you lost your mind? Would you abuse the privilege of who you are in Christ like that? Jesus died for you. What responsibility comes with that privilege? That's the question. What responsibility comes with with the privilege that the Son of God would die for you? Certainly you would think there'd be some limitations that you would naturally take on yourself. Because We don't enjoy privilege for privilege's sake. Certainly there'd be a sense of, well, what if God has died for me and has given me grace and shown me love, the love of a father to a son, father to a daughter, if he has shown me all of this, well, then now, can't you see, can't you see someone who keenly knows this would begin to naturally limit the things they say and do? I mean, think of it as a parent, those of you who are parents. You naturally know, okay? There are things that you, as a mom or a dad, are, can do, have the right to do. There's no law against doing them. No one will arrest you for doing them. But you don't do them because your sons and your daughters are watching. You don't do them. Because you, have, you see it as a privilege that you're their parent and you self-limit yourself as a witness. I have a feeling that 
it's very hard for Christians to take on the limitations God would have for us, the do's and the don'ts, the wills and the won'ts, the shalls and the shan'ts. I think it's hard for us to sort of take on some of these limitations because we haven't taken on the privilege. We're sort of living in sort of a holy mediocrity of, well, I'm saved from my sins, now what? Now it's still about me. It's, it is not about you. No more will people defile the name of God. I'd like us to think as we go to prayer that we are his holy district. Think of yourselves as that. We are the space marked out outside sort of the presence of God that makes, shows him distinct, bears witness to his uniqueness in his glory and his power that allows him to stand apart from all of the other idols and pursuits. May we be part of that. Let's pray. Lord, we do mark it a privilege. I mean, that is too even weak a word, Lord, to think that considered a privilege to be counted your sons or daughters, Lord. It is an unmerited honor. It is a title that we did not earn. And so, Lord, our prayer today is that we would in embracing the gift and the grace and the mercy of who we are in you, Lord, that we would appreciate our role and our responsibility, have a sense on our limits, have a greater sense of purpose, that our purpose is your name. Our purpose is to bring you glory because we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. From the least of us to the greatest of us. That you have elevated us through your son. And I pray, Lord, that we would cease to live for ourselves. That we would cease to seek after the privileges of man. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.